I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel, and after taking a week away from the pod, I am once again happy to be joined here in LA by my co-host Joe from back in our hometown of London. As usual, we have a very special guest joining us as well. He's a former player with well over 600 career appearances to his name. Since hanging up his boots, today's guest's managerial CV includes temporarily taking the reins at one of his former clubs, Bolton iconically leading Hull City into the Premier League and keeping the Tigers up from the drop, as well as managing a team that actually has since disbanded in India's Super League. He also managed South End United for a second spell until as recently as a couple of months ago. We welcome Phil Brown to the United Mates Football Podcast. Phil, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us on the pod. Thanks very much for being our guest and how's it going, mate? No, thanks for the invite. Uh, been looking forward to it. Um, I always like to um, engage with podcasts from all over the world. And it's really nice to understand that even in America, you know, people are interested in English football. Um, it's almost second nature. I think the whole world is sort of envious to a certain extent of the Premier League. But um, I've, I've been in many, many countries where it's not just the Premier League that uh, people are envious of. It's the, the depth of the of the football and talent that we have in England. And I'm talking about five or six levels down, you know, you can go to the second division and you can still get teams that can boast maybe 10, 12, 15,000 crowds, you know, which is quite phenomenal when you think about it. So now it's a pleasure to join you and uh, hopefully give you a little bit of insight into my life and, and the world of football in England. Exactly. The pleasure is is all ours. And of course, you've got plenty of experience uh, playing and managing across the levels of, of English football. So we will chat about that. Joe, as we record, your beloved Spurs yesterday beat Norwich 3-0. So things are going pretty well under Conte so far. My team, Arsenal, are about to play Everton at Goodison Park. That kicks off in yeah around an hour or so. I'm going to go for 2-1 to Arsenal. So Joe, how's it going, mate? And would you care to make a prediction for the podcast and then <laughs> once this is out on Friday we'll see who looks more foolish you or me <laughs> yeah well I'm good thanks and I, I was at Spurs yesterday so you know yeah lovely to be back at the stadium lovely to see us winning and playing some good football under Conte um prediction for Everton Arsenal probably gonna go one all I can't give it to Arsenal I'm gonna go one all draw um but Phil um as Kai was um saying earlier it's obviously a pleasure for us to um to have you as a guest tonight and whenever we have a guest on this podcast we always start by asking an icebreaker question so of course phil we've got an icebreaker question for you and um what we noticed phil was back in um 2009 when um hull escaped the drop um on that final day of the season i'm pretty sure that you ended up singing a song called sloop john b a beach boy song at the end <laughs> of the game and um one of the lyrics in that song, Phil, is this is the worst trip I've ever been on. So what we what we want to ask you, Phil, and you can have some time to think about this, is 
what is the worst holiday um, you've ever been on? And um, we'll give you some time to think. I'll, I'll ask um, Kai. How about you go first? What's um, what's the worst trip you've ever been on? Well, I did a great trip backpacking around around Europe um, that included a, a dodgy night sleeping in a in a train station in um, in Slovenia. So that was a bit questionable. But I'd say in terms of a, a whole trip back in you know school days before Joe and I went to school together. Um, my school went to a, a place in Wales called Sealyham to do some kind of like outdoor experience stuff and camping. And in particular, the camping was just absolutely miserable. Just picture, you know, 30 <laughs> kids in this tent, muddy, wet and, and, and miserable. Um, so, yeah, Sealyham in Wales, I, I'd put that one down. But Joe, what was the worst trip that you've ever been on? <laughs> well, once um, about, I don't know, when I was about 13, my family... Um drove to well we were trying to drive to Spain and we took the Euro tunnel um from Dover and we managed to get stuck in the Euro tunnel for, for nine hours I think um and it ended up being in the paper it was like the longest delay there's ever been on the Euro tunnel so that um that wasn't ideal and yeah it's safe to say my family didn't didn't go for that Euro tunnel option again anytime recently but um Phil what about you what what is the worst um what's the worst holiday you've been on I'm glad you're giving me time to think because um I've been on some magnificent holidays, I've got to say. You know, my, my recent visit to India was was nothing short of spellbinding. It was fabulous. You know, I went back three times and it was just fantastic. I love visiting other countries and different places and, and sampling different cultures. But my um, my current wife, um, Jade, and myself, uh, we were courting. We weren't uh, we weren't married at the time, and and we uh, decided to go. One of our favourite movies is um, Something's Got to Give, Jack Nicholson. Uh, great movie in the in the scene which finishes you know they end up in a, a restaurant in Paris like on Colbert and um, we decided to uh, jump on the Eurostar um, very similar to what you're saying just jump on the Eurostar in, in London and get to Paris spend the day in Paris finish off with dinner at La Grande Colbert and then get the the last train home as it were and uh, we we're sitting in this wonderful restaurant, beautiful restaurant, and all of a sudden there was a sort of a commotion going on with the waiters, and there had been a, a terrorist activity happening in, in Paris as I was standing watching this terrorist activity. Paris was just starting to close down, and I'm thinking, I've got work the following day. I've got, you know, we, we, it was midweek, this it was Wednesday or a Thursday, and I was, I was working the following day, managing South End. Anyway, we managed to get to the last train um, at, the, at the Paris train station before the actual lockdown went kicked into activity. And we actually fled the country, basically, uh, and got out of there. But it spoiled a great day to a certain extent. Made it really exciting, don't get me wrong. And don't, again, don't get me wrong, it's a terrorist activity. Nobody, you know, condones that kind of behaviour. But um, for it to be a memorable day, it was memorable in the wrong way, as it were, you know. Uh, fantastic that we managed to get to the, the restaurant of our dreams. Fantastic that we actually got to Paris in a day uh, on the Eurostar, which is a great journey. But unfortunately, had to escape the country, as it, as it were. You know, and you wouldn't believe that in Paris, would you? Literally, you're only a couple of hours away from South End, believe it or not. Uh, but um, got out of it safely. That was the main thing. And uh, we had the memories, but they were for the wrong reasons, unfortunately. A trip based on a Hollywood rom-com ends up sounding like a, a script for a Hollywood action movie. Phil it Brown escaping did. from France. I don't know who would be the lead actor to play you, but I think <laughs> <laughs> might as well um, 
take things I'll take back Jack. To... I'll take Jack all day long. Jack Nicholson, yeah, why not? Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, on to football, I suppose. We might as well. Um, and when we chat with guests, especially ones who have such a close involvement with the professional game, we like to get a bit of a flavour for their origin story when it comes to loving football, playing football, looking up maybe to certain footballers as a kid. And you would have grown up in the 60s in, in the northeast of England. So what was that like for you and who did you support and how did you come to love and football and want to be a footballer and a manager eventually? Well, strangely enough, my dad wanted me to be a Newcastle supporter, Newcastle United, and he took me to a, a game at St. James's Park and I remember standing in the Gallagher Den with him uh, and they were playing um, up Jess Dozer, uh, in the Fairs Cup, it was called, uh, was it the Fairs Cup or was it the Cup Winners Cup? I can't remember. Anyway, um, it just it, something about it just wasn't to my liking. I just, I didn't like the experience. I didn't want to go and support Newcastle. And I've been to see them play on a, on a number of occasions, don't get me wrong. But my mother took me to the final stages of the 1973 Cup run by Sunderland, uh, obviously culminating at, at Wembley and beating Leeds United. Uh, but on the on route, we beat um, Man City, we beat Arsenal uh, in the fifth and sixth round of the FA Cup. And I just took a liking to Sunderland as opposed to Newcastle for some reason. And I, I can't explain to you why. I mean, one was, obviously one was black and white stripes and the other one was red and white stripes. I lived in South Shields and that was a sort of 50-50 kind of village, if you like. It's only a small town, uh, but it was 50-50. It was five mile away from Newcastle. It was five mile away from Sunderland. Uh, but I just took this liking towards Sunderland and consequently um, started supporting him. Charlie Hurley, big, big tough centre-half who had the ball further than most players could kick it. Strong, real strong, powerful kind of centre-half. Jimmy Montgomery, goalkeeper who made the double save in the Leeds United final, you know, the 1973 Cup final. It was an unbelievable. First save was brilliant. Second one was, it was just from nowhere. And... Um, and then he, he presented me with a, a trophy when I was 12-year-old, Jimmy Montgomery. He came to the school and presented me with a, the Danny Blanche Flower Cup, it was called. And I was captain of the team. And So then you're, you're starting to mould yourself into where you're going to go in life. You've no idea you're going to be a professional footballer. I started, me, I started my apprenticeship as an electrician at 16. And I didn't become a pro footballer until I was 20, which is a rarity in, in the modern-day game. It would never happen nowadays. I don't think anybody slips through that net. Um, but it was Sunday league football and hardened men coming in, you know, from work, uh, half shift on a Sunday morning and playing football Sunday afternoon, a couple of pints inside them. That's the kind of um, upbringing I had from a football perspective. But fortunately for me, there was a, there was a director um, of Hartlepool United standing on the touchline one Sunday afternoon. And uh, after the game, he came across to me, just invited me down to train with the reserves at Hartlepool and, and that's where it started. Um, I got a non-contract, you call it a non-contract contract. You were getting £10 a week for a play for the reserves. And eventually got called up from the reserves to the first team because of performances and reputation and, um, and word of mouth and all that. And eventually played in the first team at the end of that season. And uh, at the very end of the season, I got me indenture forms to be an electrician, electrical engineer. And the same day, I signed a five-year contract to become a pro, pro footballer. So, you know, no longer were my days standing on the terraces following a team. It was out there across on the white line and becoming one of the legends or, you know, one of the footballers that you were hoping you were going to get a career. Um, 
that would keep you in work. And uh, and I'm talking to you as a 62 year old now, and I've I've, uh, I've been involved in football since I was 20. So I've been very very lucky to to be involved in football for so long, 42 years. But I never forget the first days. Never forget the first days. I never forget the people that were around me and uh, the support the support mechanism that I had in place and. And uh, everybody belief in you. It was brilliant in them days. And uh, consequently, uh, started believing in myself and, and the rest is history, as it were. Yeah, the rest certainly is history. And like you said, you know, it was great that the, the Hartlepool um, director was there, but you still got to make your luck, um, even at Sunday League football. Um, and actually talking about that Sunday League side, I believe they were called Red Duster. Um, that you played for in the South Shields Business Houses League. Um, That's right, yeah. And, it, and I believe there was another professional player in your team, um, Bobby Davison. So right. my question for you, Phil, is um, given obviously you and Bobby went on to have a, pro- a professional career, were, were Red Duster comfortably the best team in the league? Or did you, um, did you come up against any other people that would go on to um, have careers in the professional game too? Um, there were a number of players that were were going for trials at that time. You know, the, the Business Houses League was um, was quite a competitive league. You know, you, you had um, you had the, the Northern Premier Leagues and all of the, the leagues where the reserve team, you know, Newcastle Reserve, Southern Reserves, Carlisle, Darlington, Hartlepool, Middlesbrough, they all played in them, league, them leagues. And you, and you sometimes come up against one or two of them and you think to yourself, nothing special. I, you know, if I apply myself, if I trained on a daily basis, maybe I could get to that level. And it was the training that was the key, um, you know, not having to go to work at 7.30 in the morning, finishing at 4.30, then go and train. You know, that, that was something that um, obviously wasn't a line of progression for me. Uh, but when I went in to see my boss at uh, Pyrotechnics, which was the, uh, the factory that I worked at, I went in to see him and I just said, I'm, you know, I'm a, not an apprentice at Hartlepool United, I'm a, I'm a non-contract player, but at the end of, of this campaign, um, I'm thinking that they might want to, you know, turn me into a pro, which means I've got to finish work. Didn't want me to finish. He wanted me to stay on, you know, and um, that was nice to know. Obviously, I was qualified as a, as a Sparky and they wanted to keep me on. So the beauty of it was, I think, down to the mentality of, um, of my parents, you know, hard work gets reward. And then if your talent eventually comes through. It, it, it takes care of itself to a certain extent. Um, but the moves, I think the moves are the most important part. The Northeast was a hotbed of football. But then to sort of get into the middle of the country where there was less travelling and, and more preparation time, you know, so I moved, my first move was to Halifax and then to Bolton. So I've gone from, you know, the Northeast to Yorkshire, then into Lancashire, and you're getting further south, as it were, and you, you're in the middle, you're in the centre of it all, and your prep time is, is much better and much easier. You're better prepared. Instead of being in the Northeast, and you're playing Torquay United and you've got a seven and a half hour journey, you're not really going to get much prep time. But at the same time, I was thinking to myself, what level can I play to? You know, every step that I was making, I was hoping it was going to be a move up as opposed to sideways or down. And um, the Halifax one was was a geographical move. Then the Bolton one was, was to a manager who I thought, if anybody's going to teach me how to play right back, Phil Neal was going to, Phil Neal was going to do that. He was England's right back over 50 times. Um, he'd won every trophy that was ever played for domestically for Liverpool. So if anybody was going to teach me how to play right back, it was Phil Neal. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Phil wasn't a good coach. Um, his assistant manager, Mick Brown, was an excellent coach. 
and he got more out of me from a, a coaching perspective. But I then, when Phil left uh, Bolton Wanderers, Bruce Riop came along. Wow. That was the man that took me to the next level of playing. And uh, he made it he made it more understanding that it was all about the mentality, not just the physicality. It was all about what was going on between your ears. And he made me think about the game a little bit more. And, and meeting Bruce Riop at the right time in my career probably kept me in the game. Oh, no, that's that's interesting. And of course, Bruce Rioch would be the guy who would be the last Arsenal manager before Wenger, I think. That's right. They, that's they right. go on to Arsenal eventually. And, I, that, and I'm, I'm glad Kai's on the uh, on the uh, the show because I can tell him a great story, a fabulous story about meeting Arsenal, Arsenal Wenger when he first came to Arsenal. Fabulous story. But carry on, sorry. Oh, no worries at all. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of Wenger for the time being. But um, on, <laughs> on, to your, um, on to your playing career. Um, I know you meant you that you started at Hartlepool, went to Halifax, Bolton, and then off to Blackpool at the end. But specifically during your time at Bolton, I know you actually won a trophy there. It was the Associate Members' Cup, which is now the, the Papa John's Trophy, I believe. Yeah. Um, how, um, how did winning that trophy kind of rank in, I don't know, personal achievements during your professional career? Was, was that right up there? I, um, I never thought I was a great player. Um, I never thought I was a, you know, one of the, a, a top player. I just, I really enjoyed my football. It was as simple as that. I was a hard-working right-back. Um, no nonsense to a certain extent. Didn't like a winger um, having too much of good possession. So did something about it, you know, stepped into the physicality side of things. I don't think I'd be able to survive in today's game. Uh, I don't think particularly I was quick enough. Um, but bottom line is I always try to impose myself on the guy I was playing against. And that was my way of playing football. And to get consecutive games, it obviously where the managers were concerned, they were obviously believing that I was doing the right kind of job. Uh, but to um, to take you on a journey that took us to, to Wembley at the end of that season in the, in the Associate Members' Cup, I thought it was called the Sherpa Van Trophy or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, um, at the start of that season, um, we were all coming together as a, a new group at Bolton Wanderers. And Phil Neal was not quite sure who was going to be the captain. The captain from the previous year had left the club. So now the captaincy was available, a, a vacancy for the captain, if you like. And we had probably seven or eight players in that change room that could have quite easily led the change room, led the, led the club. Um, from a captain's perspective. And it was good to know that, you know, seven or eight that you could rely on week in, week out. Anyway, Mark came, got the captaincy at the start of the season. Everybody was pleased for him, get on with it, you know. And then about two, possibly three games into that season, I always remember him breaking his leg and it was a horrendous break. And um, he was out for the rest of the season. So I'm sitting in the half-time team talk with Phil Neal and Mick Brown and our captain's in, in a hospital bed and it's half time, so I turned to Mick Brown and said, who's, who's taking the team up? And the answer was you. He gave me the captain's arm there and then. I got the captaincy through that. At the end of that season, I'm obviously walking up the stairs to collect the trophy uh, as the captain of the club. And uh, Kami was there. He was on his crutches but couldn't make the stairs. So I really wanted him to, to be up there, you know, because at the end of the day, he had got the captaincy. He was captain. I was vice captain, if you like, and uh, but I was captain of the team on the day. But to lead a team at Wembley is just, from a personal perspective, was just a highlight of my career. Um, and for not to win too many trophies, yes, you had a couple of promotions and this, that and the other, but to win a trophy and to play at Wembley, I'll never forget it. You know, it was a fabulous day. Um, OK, we beat Torquay 4-1, but 
I think Torquay went one nil up against us. So we showed a little bit of desire. We showed a little bit of bottle um, and, and managed to win the game. So you set out to achieve winning things and, and you end up winning something, then you have to understand that it's memorable as far as I was concerned. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's every English kid's you know dream pretty much to um, captain a team at uh, Wembley, win a win a trophy at, at Wembley, and that I I can't wait actually yeah to hear this this Arsene Wenger story. But speaking first of a, a bit of a different manager, and at Blackpool under Sam Allardyce, you were both a player and his assistant manager. Uh, of yeah. course, that's a role that you would take up again with Sam at, at Bolton. So how how did that relationship and that specific dynamic? come about where he trusted you as his right-hand man? How did it all start? It started with um, a lot of people thought that me and Sam played together at Bolton. We didn't. We, uh, we didn't cross paths. Him and Phil Neal didn't see eye to eye. And when Sam left, I arrived. So we missed each other in terms of our playing careers. But when it came down to the Blackpool job, um, Billy Bingham actually signed me on as a player at Blackpool. Uh, he was director of football, but they hadn't chose the manager. They hadn't they hadn't made their mind up on the manager. And there was a, a whole list of good managers that were out of work that were looking for this job. And it was a tough job. It was a tough gig, you know. Owen Oyston was, was the chairman. He had his ideas about how to play, how, how football needed to be played and how he wanted his club running. And Billy Bingham had a, a history as an international manager and he was a director of football. So it was going to be a tough gig for somebody. But Sam was absolutely desperate to just get into management. And when he took the role... Um, I was already at the club as a player and uh, he took Bobby Saxton in as his assistant manager, stroke, chief scout. It had Bobby had about three or four different roles at the football club and that's how he actually got him in. Anyway, Bobby didn't quite see eye to eye with Billy Bingham and consequently half a season through that year, them two fell out with each other. And I was playing snooker in the Bolton Leagues one Thursday night and I got a phone call from Sam, Sam Allardyce. Brownlee, where are you? I'm in the, uh, in the worker men's club playing snooker. So he found me two weeks' wages. <laughs> found me two weeks' wages for drinking on a Thursday night prior to a game. I said, I'm not drinking. I said, come, come down. I'll show you how, how I can play snooker. But I'm not, I wasn't drinking. I was just in a place that sold alcohol, and that was against the rules. Anyway, cut long story short, he was, uh, he was down in a flash, and he just told me the story that Bobby had got sacked and that um, he wanted me to join him as uh, first-team coach. Um, but I had, I still had me playing duties. He wanted me to first, be first team coach. He wanted be, me to also take the reserves. He wanted me to play in the reserves if I wasn't playing in the first team. So you talk about a learning curve. It was massively a steep up learning curve. You know, it was just that every day I was, I was doing a million things and just learning my trade very, very quickly. And sometimes playing on that Saturday, and that was the hard part, you know, mixing with the players, and then I'm going in the coach's room and talking football with the manager and the rest of the coaching staff. It was really difficult to get a balance in my life where, where that was concerned, but I absolutely soaked up everything that came my way. Driving a team bus to away fixtures for a reserve game on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, teaching, playing alongside Craig Allardyce, Sam's, Sam's son, teaching him how to play left-hand side centre-back, which I thought was a niche market. I think it was a, a market for people who couldn't kick with their left foot just to learn how to play on the left-hand side because nobody, nobody wants to play there. And to be a left-footed centre-back, well, you've got a great chance of staying in the game at a higher level for a longer period of time. So I was, I was, 
you know, the job was endless and it was sleepless nights and I could have been playing on the Saturday in, in the first team, but everything that came my way, I didn't even think about fatigue. I didn't even think about, you know, I shouldn't be doing this on a, on a Thursday night or a Friday night because Saturday comes and I was, I was in the team. It was, it was one of them, just everything came at me a million miles an hour and I just soaked it all up. And uh, more importantly, the big man had an idea about how he wanted the, the game played in his own mind, how he saw the game. And I just went along with it. I went for the ride. You know, he came, he came obviously from America in the, lat, the latter stages of his career. Um, was it San Jose Earthquakes, I think he played for? And uh, he came back with an idea that he wanted every player at the football club to have a coach. So if he had 25-man squad, he wanted 25 coaches at the club. Now, he didn't mean just football coaches. He's talking about sp strength and conditioning, psychology, stretching, you name it. Then he, he, he actually put everything into place at Bolton, but he couldn't quite get there at Blackpool because we didn't have enough time. There was only four of us in the backroom staff, but he had this idea. And then uh, one day, sort of three or four years down the line, when we were sitting there in a, a team talk at Bolton Wanderers and he started chuckling and, and laughing. And I was looking at him and said, what are you laughing at? And he said, uh, count how many people's in the room. How many coaches we had? 32 coaches in the room at the time. So he fulfilled his ambition, his ideas of how America had turned his mind to this one coach per player kind of scenario. And you can only fulfill that with obviously with finances and backing from your club. He wasn't getting that at Blackpool and uh, he certainly got it at Bolton. Oh yeah, he certainly did. What what a fantastic spell um, he had there, obviously, with you helping him. Um, and yeah, it sh shows the value of having a vision, I suppose, when you can you can see it through. But um, yeah, but, yeah. Let's just move on, Phil, to your managerial career now. So obviously, you were the assistant manager under Allardyce, and I know under Colin Todd, you were at Bolton as well. Even had a short caretaker spell there um, as manager at one point. But just want to talk briefly about Derby County, your first um, sort of permanent managerial job, and obviously. Managers know all too well that you, you know, you, you often managers aren't afforded that much time. And I think you were only given seven months at Pride Park. Um, given that this was your first um, sort of permanent managerial job, did did you sort of did you feel this was particularly harsh at the time? Given that you, you know, you you, you effectively weren't really you weren't even given a full season to have a, a proper crack at it. It was harsh at the time because I didn't really understand the whole picture, the whole role, the expectation levels of supporters is something that as a manager, you have to handle, you have to manage expectation levels. And I didn't really understand that side of it uh, when I first got the job at Derby County. Um, yes, you can phone people up and ask them for advice and, and try to understand what was going on at your football club. And it's not just about football. You know, the moment it's just about football, I'll, I'll pitch myself against anybody. But when it comes down to politics and, and money uh, and it's downright, sometimes it was, when I look back, and I think it was just downright evil what was going on behind the scenes. But I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't disclose it. But when you actually do get the sack, yes, there's, a amount, there's an amount of people that go, yeah, you deserve it because of results. So it was the best decision. It was this, that, and the other. But all the, all the goodness that you're trying to do behind the scenes just goes washed away because the next man comes in and tries to do it his way, which is understandable. But when you think about the three board members got, got uh, jail sentences, uh, probably about six weeks after I got the sack, that tells you what kind of situation I was working in. 
Now, I'm not here to decry them people. I'm just saying, if that had just been about football and, and let me get on with just managing the football team, then it might be a different argument. But it was just um, the whole club was just going in the wrong direction because of people that on there were board members that were getting um, ideas about how they think the club should be run. And the manager was surplus to that. You know, he wasn't really involved in them situations. But well, one thing tells you for sure, them three got, um, so the director of football, the chief executive and uh, the financial director all got jail. And I've, I've got the sack. Um, I know which one I'd rather have, <laughs> for sure. But at the same time, I know which one uh, took me to the next level, which was at Hull City. And it was the whole situation that I was surviving on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it be seven months or whether it be seven years, to survive that kind of day-to-day scrutiny from the wrong kind of people um, stood me in good stead. Joe, I have to say, it stood me in good stead and it's the reason how I succeeded or why I succeeded at Hull City. Yeah, definitely learn, I suppose, how, how not to kind of act in, in the high up levels at a, a club. And it's a shame always when um, politics... Kai, and... I think, I think, Kai, I think the, the, the most important thing is when you do due diligence on a football club, make sure you do it uh, to a certain depth and level. And don't just think, oh, that's a lovely job. I'll, I'll take that job and think it's Derby County, which is a fabulous club. Don't just think that. There's, you've got to drill in. You've got to know where to ask the questions and what questions to ask. And once you get that due diligence done, then you make a decision. You make a bed, you lie in it, you know? Even today, you know, the name Derby County, you look at the point deduction that they, they've been suffering. So it's a good point that you you make. And I suppose moving on to, to Hull, things would go a bit better. And back in October 2006, though, when you were appointed a first team coach, actually the club was in the championship relegation zone. So things have come a long way. Um, your first taste of managing the club would be in a joint caretaker role alongside Colin Murphy, who later on was your assistant. Are you a little surprised or kind of curious just to get your thoughts about the joint management kind of situation? Do you think that maybe more clubs these days could benefit from it? Or does having two managers with that same responsibility and then also kind of players having two bosses to look up to instead of one make things too complicated? One thing I will say is um, I know Colin's um, poorly at the moment and uh, uh, what a great guy. What an absolute pleasure to work with. He was... He was serious when he needed to be serious. He had experience. He was funny when he needed to be funny. One of the funniest men I'd ever met. Um, and for to have him alongside me, um, the only reason I had him alongside me in a joint management team was when I asked him the question, do you want this job? And the answer was no. But from a public perspective, it had to be a joint management team because of my inexperience. And I understand that. So it was a, it was a, not a ruse. It was a, a, a tactic that was deployed by the football club to make sure that all the flack wasn't going to fall on, on the one guy, which would have been me, because the answer is quite simple. He's not, he's not experienced enough. We shouldn't have given him the job. But the joint management team of Colin, Colin Murphy and myself, yeah, it worked at first. I think um, from within, everybody knew who was, who was number one because Colin said to every player at the football club, I don't want to be the manager at the club. I'm here to help this guy. So he was, he was my assistant, if truth be known. And then uh, when push came to shove at the end of that season and, uh, and I got the, the job full time, then you're moving in the right direction outside as well as in. And that was, that was key, that the, the information that was outside the football club 
matched up what was going on inside the football club because if it, as soon as you start mismatching that, you've got you're on a losing, you're on a sticky wicket. Um, you're not going to win that one because the first questions just come flying in about well, you know, who, what's he doing, what's she doing, and what they're doing. And, and bottom line is, book lies with me. I'm the manager. End of story. So when I say something, it actually means something. When you're a joint management, doesn't really doesn't really cut some the the, the same kind of mustard as it were, you know. It sounds like kind of the, the way you guys figured it out worked for you. And it's a good thing to hear that the public relations and kind of, um, you know, you weren't used as a puppet this time, uh, unlike kind of the sounds of things maybe at Derby. Whereas mm. um, we're going to go on to speak a bit more about Hull coming up in the, the Premier League. But before we, we do, there's just one game that I can't not ask you about. Although Joe Joe won't appreciate this because on the day he was sat in the Bristol City yeah. yeah, he's got ties to, to to Bristol City, but it was, of course, the historic 07-08 season playoff final win at, at Wembley where Dean Windass scored that amazing volley to take the Tigers up. But your team, Hull, coming into that and kind of approaching the season weren't necessarily a fancied side to, to gain promotion. So what were the key man management or tactical elements that you brought to the squad, Phil, that meant the club could eventually overcome the odds and yeah, get promoted to the Premier League? I think the, um, the management of me was was more important than my management of the team. I think the, the guys above me, and I'm talking about Paul Duffin when he first came, Russell Bartlett, you know, the owners of the club, um, they had been doing, I'm talking about due diligence on me doing it on a club, they had been doing due diligence on me whilst we were in this relegation battle the year previous. And they watched me working closely without me knowing Adam Pearson was selling the club. And Adam was allowing these guys as close as they needed to get to the football club from a financial perspective, from watching training, from watching me work, from coming to games, you name it. They were watching closely, something like 17 games. And then we had a 1-0 victory um, on the last day of the season at Cardiff. And that kept us in the championship. And now the club was still the saleable asset because it was a championship status club to these guys. And then within an hour after that game, Adam Pearson came along to me and just introduced me to them for the first time. And uh, they were my new bosses, but my contract was up. What was, what was happening? I, I, you know, it was one of them moments where you think, well, if they've been doing due diligence on me for 17 games, you know, warts and all kind of scenario, uh, they're either going to like me or hate me. But they, they, they liked me. They, they wanted me to stay. They wanted me to be the manager. They gave me a three-year deal. They, te- they told me everything necessary for a manager to hear. This is a three-year project. Forget about getting promotion to the Premier League in the first year. Forget about promotion to the Premier League in the second year. But it's a three-year project. We need to get promotion to the Premier League within them three years. So that takes the pressure off to a certain extent. And it was great. It was fantastic. We didn't start that season particularly well, 10 games in we would have been just above the relegation zone. And f- from a team that was in a relegation battle the previous year, and Phil Parkinson losing his job and just surviving last day of the season, it wasn't a nice feeling. But I started getting to drill into what people in the area wanted. What, you know, some, something like three generations of deprivation. You know, you had um, the fishing industry in the 12-mile radius had caused all sorts of financial issues in, in the Humberside region. And Hull was in three, three generations of deprivation. But what I wanted on the, on the terraces, I wanted to understand what these people wanted from us. 
What did you want from us as a football team? Everybody says win, of course. But all they wanted to see was hard work. They wanted to see, they worked hard for their money. When they paid money to come through the turnstiles, they want to see the team working hard. And if we play great football at the same time, brilliant. If we play winning football at the same time, brilliant. But at the same time as hard work was a non-negotiable. Nobody would move away from that. You just, you had to put a shift in. And I I had people around me that did that, naturally. And then you had hometown boys like Nicky Barnby, um, who had a little bit of something special in him. And then you had a hometown boy who was playing for Bradford, literally most of that season. And I met Dino um, about, oh, I can't remember where it was, three quarters of the way through that season or halfway through the season. I told him, I'll never forget it, I'm meeting Dean Windus in North Ferriby and him and his missus are coming to a restaurant. And I said to Dean, whatever you do, Dean, keep it quiet. I said, because your, your box office in Hull, your box office, it'll be all over the place. If we're trying to get you out of Bradford, I need to get you out on a free transfer. I need this, that, and I need that. I'm talking to a 35, 36-year-old bloke here. And Dean Winner said, yeah, no problem, no problem, no problem. Phones up, as soon as I put that phone down, he phoned up the local media and said, I'm on my way back to Hull. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Honestly, when I met the fella, he was just infectious. He was a great character. And for to have Dean Windus and Nicky Barnby hold boys in the change room, you're on a winner. You're, it's a win-win situation. You've got people around them that work hard. You've got these two who are local lads who were the cream on the, on, on the cake, as it were. And um, so it just, we just started building this rapport with the supporters. And eventually that season turned into middle of the table. Then it turned into knocking at the door of the playoffs. Then it turned into the playoffs. And then the chairman's now saying we could get automatic promotion in the first year. And that's when the pressure, as soon as he said them words, that's when the pressure hit. As soon as the chairman let it out that, well, you know, we're in a good position here. Automatic promotion's not beyond what we can do, what we can achieve. Having said to me at the start of the season, it'll take three years to get to the Premier League. They're now, they're now demanding automatic promotion. So the pressure became on us a wee bit. Um, and that's the reason why we didn't get automatic promotion, in my opinion. Uh, but we finished in the playoffs. And, uh, and as you say, the rest is history. Watford, home and away, and then Bristol City. Yeah, no, it was um, it was a football fairy tale. I was, yeah, I was in the Bristol City and when Windass scored that amazing volley. But no, what 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 a story! A hometown boy bringing Hull up to the Premier League, and then I guess you get up to the Premier League, um, Phil, and it just gets better and better in those first nine games. Um, I was actually I was at White Hart Lane when Giovanni scored an amazing goal, and um, when you beat us there, and I know. Um, you beat Arsenal as well, so Kai, you got a defeat in for him as well. And Giovanni scored another good goal there. But basically, after the first nine games of the season, I think Hull were third. You'd got manager of the month. It was, I mean, it was just a, a dream come true for everybody in Hull. Do you, um, in those first nine games, um, do you have a particular game that stands out as particularly memorable for you? It, I do, and it's it's for the opposite reason to what you're saying. I mean. I'm going to go to, I'm a Sunderland supporter, as I've said at the start of the podcast, and I'm going to go to the Emirates to see Sunderland play in the, um, in the, is it the, I think it's the quarterfinals of the, the League Cup. Uh, so that's on the, the 21st of this month. And looking forward to it, just going, I've never seen Sunderland, so, I've never seen Sunderland as a supporter since back in the day when I was a teenager. So now I'm going to watch them against the mighty Arsenal. <laughs> 
By the way, Kai, we might just upset the odds. You never know. But um, yeah, in them, in them first games, we beat Newcastle away from home. We beat uh, Spurs away from home. We beat Arsenal away from home. But the, the most difficult game that we had was the West Bromwich Albion game. Strangely enough, we went to West Bromwich Albion um, and we'd had a, a reasonable first two or three fixtures. But West Brom was a, a yo-yo club in the 90s and they were now establishing themselves as a Premier League outfit. And I'm telling you, the first, I'll never forget the first 15, 20 minutes, we could have been three or four goals down, apart from um, Bose Mile. Bose Mile was absolutely on fire, outstanding. We ended up winning 3-0. Now, all that's reported is the 3-0 scoreline. Hull City's won away. Uh, not really giving us too much notice, not giving us too much coverage. Last game on the TV, you know, with regards to the match of the day, which was great for us. It was fine for us. You know, we're flying under the radar. We'll stay under the radar, not a problem. But then you go to places like, you know, Spurs and Wandy Ramos's last game. Nobody likes to see that. Um, then you go to the Emirates and you, you beat Arsene Wenger on his own patch and you think, oh dear me, what's going on here? Uh, we just started building this wonderful belief system. But then people started taking us seriously. Instead of it being, ah, it's only a whole 104 years of being in the lower division, it's only a whole city. Nobody took any care, notice, attention of us whatsoever until the 10th game when we went to, we went to Portsmouth and, um, and uh, they paid us more respect and more attention and the preparation you could see in their team, the, the game. Harry Redknapp was the manager, Joe Jordan, assistant manager, Kevin Bond. Good people, good football people. They, they were the three backroom staff and they went, whoa, hold on a second. Something going on at Hull City. We need to do something about this. And they put the diagonal ball left to right, right to left against us and it absolutely destroyed us. Uh, and they beat us and it really gave me a... a that was the moment where I just woke up. I went, wow, we've got six wins in the first nine games. Now, all of a sudden, reality's kicking in here. People are actually paying us, paying us a little bit of respect and a little bit of attention. So we had to try and go to the next level. We were physical. We couldn't really get to the next level from a technical point of view. But um, we were physical. We were decent at set pieces. We were organised. We were hardworking. But all of that come um, at, a, at a cost. And uh, the cost was that we just didn't have enough quality, you know, without being disrespectful, we just couldn't afford it. You know, my, my budget for that season was 16 and a half million. And uh, obviously everyone wants to talk about the half-time team talk uh, against Man City. They had one player in that, on that pitch, Robinho, 33 million. So put it into perspective, if you want to put it into a financial, you know, that's the reason why you succeed. That's the reason why you don't succeed. 16 and a half million total budget compared to 33 million for one player. Yeah, that's kind of astronomical fees comparatively, obviously. And you've taken essentially the next question out of my mouth because you, like you said, <laughs> everyone, everyone wants to talk about it. So we, we will keep it brief as I'm sure you've told the story of, you know, millions of times, but in December of 2008, that season away at City, you would give your whole players that infamous on-pitch halftime team talk. You, looking back, if you had known then what you know now in terms of the reaction that, that followed, what, would you have maybe reconsidered the location of that team talk? Um, yes um, and no. 
uh, I've been pilloried by a lot of media because of it, uh, but I've also received interviews and jobs. I've received work because of it. Um, it's a character thing. It's a reference to me directly. Uh, it's a re reference to me backroom stuff, you know, the, the Brian Hortons of this world, the Steve Partons of this world. It was a reference not only to them as well, uh, the players on the field of play. If I, if I had been Ian Ashby as the captain of the club, and let, don't get me wrong, Ian Ashby, I can't speak highly enough of Ian Ashby, you know, captain the team from the second division right the way through to the, to the Premier League. And he wasn't, he wasn't just playing, he wasn't just being picked because he was captain. He was actually grabbing a hold of games in the Premier League for a lad who, you know, four years previous was in the second division, promoted to the first, promoted to the championship. And I'm keeping him on side as, as the leader. I'm keeping him on side as the captain of Hull City. And he, he held his own, not a problem. So as he was coming off, the half-time whistle goes, we're 4-0 down. 38th minute, I think the fourth goal went in. That's when I started having these thoughts. I turned to Brian and said to him, uh, thinking about keeping them outside, six and a half thousand supporters over there that sacrificed Christmas Day. It was Boxing Day, the game. They've sacrificed Christmas Day to be here, and we turned up like this. Uh, but it, there was a there was a, a motive behind it. It was a you know a couple of players that I, you know remain unnamed that uh, did hadn't behaved themselves before the game, hadn't conducted themselves in a professional manner. So there was a reason for it. And uh, I just, I wanted to sort of repay the whole city supporters for turning up that day, because we hadn't. And I turned uh, to Brian and said this, and he said, get on with it. He's got his full support. Steve Parkin remained a little bit non-plus. Steve wasn't behind it, didn't, didn't like the idea, but Brian Horton over a thousand games under his belt as a manager. So um, I just walked on the pitch when the whistle went at half time. First guy I come up to was Ian Ashby. And he looked at me, where are you going, Gaffer? I said, over there. Team talks over there in front of our world. He just turned around and followed me. George Boateng turned around and followed me. So every, every one of the players just turned around and followed me. So I'm storming across the pitch. And I'll never forget, the funny part was, say, I don't know, 35,000 people there. Six and a half behind the goal. All ours haven't moved. Um... But all the City fans were sort of getting in queues for the ales, for to go and get their cups of coffee, paints of lager, whatever they want. And <laughs> they see me walking on the pitch towards the whole City fans. Everybody's just turning back and going back to their seats as if a bullfight was just about to start. You know, some kind of spectacle going on here. It was hilarious. It was Honestly, it was absolutely... As I was walking across, it was gathering momentum in my head, what I wanted to say to the people, to the players. and. Um, sat them down and, and then delivered what I needed to deliver, which I can't repeat on TV, of course. Um, but um, I don't know. Um, in hindsight, was it the right thing to do? Probably not. In hindsight, did I regret it? No, I didn't. Uh, it's me. That's all there is to it. You know, if you want character, if you want strength of character, if you want somebody who's going to make decisions based on... Um, trust and hard work and stuff like that. That's exactly what we didn't have. We didn't have any trust out there. We didn't have any hard work out there. And that's the reason why I wanted to go and tell six and a half thousand supporters. Yeah, what, what a moment. We spoke about 
Jack Nicholson earlier. This was more kind of Al Pacino, any given Sunday, <laughs> fight, fight for that inch. Um, but uh, on, on Hull's second half of the season form, things, things dipped a bit. The club survival was only confirmed on the last day of the season. And I can re- quite vividly remember that I think in the middle of a tough run for you guys, there was a late Minucho winner against Fulham that would become an extremely valuable three points for Hull at the end of the campaign. Mm. Phil, do, do you think the drop in form was kind of a mental thing, lack of experience at that top flight, or was it a, a physical fatigue issue to do with the demands of, of the league? I think it was a, a combination of a lot of things. I've, I've, if I'm being brutally honest, I think the next game, the next game was a telltale turning point for me, not the Man City fixture. The next game we had Aston Villa at home and uh, just before New Year's Day, I think it was. And we're coming to the latter stages of that game and it's nil-nil the score. Uh, a decent performance from both teams, to be fair. And we won the attack with two minutes, three minutes left on the clock, we've got a corner. And the corner comes in, we've attacked the corner at the near post area, and Ashley Young, uh, who was playing, I think he might have been playing left wing that day, Ashley, Ashley Young was on the lane in the near post area. And as the ball comes into our striker, I don't know who headed it, I can't remember who headed it, it goes down towards the six-yard lane, and then bounces back up towards the crossbar. And Ashley Young puts his hand up and pulls it away. But the referee gives a penalty. Now, this is not well documented for anybody because it's easy forgotten. But this is absolute clear as a day. The next game after the Man City half-time team tour. So he pulls his hand away. And it's a penalty that's being given by the referee. Now, the fourth official, there's no such thing as um, everybody weigh it up. You know, the way you can hear, you know, the fourth official can hear the referee, the fourth official can hear the linesman in the modern day game. In fact, you know, you, you're talking about VAR and stuff like that. Nobody was weighed up. Only the referee and the two linesmen could contact each other. The fourth official was standing beside me and couldn't speak to anybody on the pitch. So I turned to my left-hand side, home game at the KC Stadium, turned to my left-hand side, and the fourth official, who was a recognised referee, disappears, goes down the tunnel. Sky cameras were set up in the tunnel. So the sky cameras were down there with Jeff Stelling. No, Jeff Stelling wasn't there. Who's um, Who's the reporter? Jeff Reeves. And um, Jeff's gone, it's not a handball. It's not a handball. He's pulled his hand away. It's not a handball. So he comes running out now, the fourth official, runs down the touch lane, says it to the linesman who's standing in lane with the six-yard lane. Um, it's not a handball. It's not a handball. He's pulled his hand away. And the referees now, we're, we're waiting for the penalty taker to take the penalty. The referee blows his whistle, gives a gold kick. Never changed his mind in his career. He goes, he gives a goal. Okay. They went up the other end, scored a goal. They beat us 1 0. Now, we could have won that game. In that moment, it's probably, uh, this, this is probably the advent of VAR now, when, what I'm talking about. But if you go back to that game and look at the, the antics that went on, it was just totally illegal. The fourth official had no right to run down the tunnel. He had no right to run along to the linesman. He had no right to give, albeit it was the right decision. Now, I'm not, I'm an honest man. He's given a penalty. And I'm thinking, was it? I didn't know. Was it? Wasn't it? But then when you see the replay, it's not. So it's the right decision. But the euphoria that was surrounding it was totally blown out the water by the fact that I'd done a half-time team talk at Man City the game before, and I've lost the changing room. That's the headlines. I've lost the changing room. 
we should be beating Aston Villa 1-0. God. Wow, yeah, that is a, shows why VAR came in, I guess. Just, Aye, absolutely. Oh, oh, <laughs> what a crazy story. But um, we've just got a, just before we get onto that Wenger story, we've just got um, a question about a bit bit later on in your managerial career. When I know that you had, um, you have gone on, you'd have a short spell at Preston, you were at Southend and had a great um, great first spell there. And I know the second spell more recently was a bit trickier, but I'm, I'm interested in your spell in India, actually, um, at Hyderabad, um, who used to be uh, Pune City, I believe. Um, yeah. Has that experience of managing abroad whetted that appetite to potentially pursue um, other managerial positions abroad in future? Um, yeah, it has, Joe. Um... I wouldn't be frightened to, to go anywhere, I think, to, um, to apply my trade uh, as an experienced manager. Um, the Hyderabad situation was typical India. You know, Pune City, who I'd signed for to start off with, had a fantastic run at the end of that season. Just missed out in the playoffs last game of the season, having inherited a side that was rock bottom of, of the ISL. Um, won five, drew two, lost one. Uh, of eight games and then carried on obviously with Pune City and then all of a sudden the owner phones me up and just said I've just sold the fran franchise but the new franchisee uh, the owners of Hyderabad uh, they wanted me as the manager so it just carried on basically it just it just moved on but you get new owners and you've got you've got to know your owners and I, I knew the owners of Pune had, uh, had been doing a lot of due diligence on them and, uh, and vice versa and met them on two or three occasions before I actually accepted the job. And, uh, but then they sell the franchise and you just get a new, a new boss. You get a new owner. You, you've got to now try and work with this guy. And it, it just didn't work. And uh, unfortunately lost my position halfway through that season. Uh, but the experience they wanted because of that experience that I had in India and the way I was not outspoken where the press were concerned, but also, I, I liked the press, I courted the press, I tried to influence the press with regards to the promotion of, of football as opposed to cricket, because it's 95% cricket over there. Um, and all of that um, le led me back to a production team when I worked for IMG Reliance on the um, ISL Season 7. And it was brilliant, I really enjoyed it. Did 115 games in about, well, in about 115 days. It was a game every day, we got through a, a pandemic who, held up in a hotel in Goa, in a bio bubble. It was brilliant the way they did it, but only in India. I keep on saying it's only in India. They, 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 they beat the, the, the wildest and strongest and hardest odds very simply, very simply with easy thinking. You know, I learned so much in India. I really enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, it's opened my eyes to anywhere in the world. I love the experience of different cultures and uh, I, I would go anywhere. I really would. I would go anywhere to work. Sounds like a fantastic experience. India is a place I've, I've never been to, and um, got to go, Kai. Honestly, when I when I do go, I'll be um, in your ear about some recommendations for, uh, for no problem to, to travel. But something else that um, is well, another great experience that I have had in my in my life is being not these days, but back in the day, an, an Arsenal fan, and especially under Arsene Wenger. So the the floor is yours, Phil. Uh, Joe and I are all ears to, to hear about this encounter with Arsene. I, um, I've got nothing but the utmost respect for Arsene Wenger. What he did at Arsenal was fabulous. And for a takeover from a manager that I worked with in Bruce Rioch, I thought Bruce was the right man for the job at, at Arsenal. He did a fabulous job at Bolton and he, and he earned the right to, to be Arsenal's manager. Uh, but the one thing Bruce did, he takes people on 
he took the changing room on in terms of players. He was trying to take Ian Wright on and people like that. You're never going to win that. Um, he didn't quite um, understand the drinking mentality, the drinking culture that was on at Arsenal at that time. He took on David Dean. You're not going to win that one. And then he took the supporters on. You're never going to win that one. But yeah, everybody remembers him for bringing in Dennis Burkamp and trying to change the way uh, that they behaved, the, the change room. But he had too many battles going on and you're never going to win them all. You've got to, you know, if, you, if you're going to take the players on, you've got to maybe put your arm around David Dean and try and work it that way because he was a good guy. He had Arsenal at, you know, I thought every time I've met David Dean, he's been, he's been fantastic. But when I, you know, I heard him take the supporters on, he, he's just never going to win that one unless you're winning games of football. It's as simple, simple as that. So um, I had took uh, the assistant role at, uh, at Bolton because uh, Colin Todd stepped into Bruce's shoes at Bolton. So he, he brought me back from, from Blackpool and, and we were working well together. Um, we got promoted out of sight in the championship. We had 99 points, 100 goals. We were a proper team you know, playing the right football. And then we went in the Premier League. And uh, one of the early games we were playing, I think it was Chelsea we were, we were playing, and we were staying in um, St. Albans, St Albans, I think it's the, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the hotel. Um, I can't think of the name of the hotel off the top of my head, but it'll come to me. And uh, Arsene Wenger staying at the hotel. Uh, he was living there. The training ground was literally London Colony. It was just down the way, <coughs> which was, the old Watford, well, it's the new Watford training ground. Um, and that's what Arsenal's training ground was. It wasn't the, the new one that they've got. It was the old one. And, and they were living in the hotel because there had been um, a fire and uh, they burned down the buildings and stuff like that. So they only had the football pitches. So all, all the players were in this, this hotel. And we're playing Chelsea. Uh, and on a Saturday morning, I'm sitting down having breakfast with Colin Todd. And, and uh, we're talking about... Um, who would there be anybody in the Premier League, any individual player that you would man mark? That's one of the discussions that we talked about in walks Arsene Wenger. And we're like, wow. Um, and he sat down at the table. He wasn't invited. He just sat down at the table alongside us. Two and a half hours later, he's talking about his vision for Arsenal and, and where he was going to take the club. And I didn't know, I didn't know whether he knew that we were closely um, attached to Bruce Rioch. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know whether he was being clever where that was concerned. But on the morning of the game, they, Arsenal were playing as well. He was telling us how he's going to convert this hotel into um, Sotwell House. That's the name of the hotel. He's going to convert this hotel into a village and he's going to turn it into an Arsenal village and he's going to bring players in from Europe, all over Europe, and, and flood the, the changing, room, changing room with good professional footballers and and try and smash the drink culture that was attached with Arsenal at the time. And if you could survive that, get on with it. But he's going to bring a whole new regime. 25 years later, he's still there. That for me, that was in his first year. And that was the first meeting I had with him. I didn't have such a good meeting with him after that too many times because I think he just, um, he proved himself in them first couple of years. And then he sort of had this arrogance about himself that protected him. It protected Arsenal. He felt as if he has to protect the changing room because of how big it was becoming. You know, it was, you know, toe to toe with Manchester United. It tells you the invincibles and all that. It takes a lot of preparation, a lot of hard work, and a lot of thought, a lot of thought process. But he he actually built Arsenal from within and made it the great club 
that they were. And uh, I took a lot of doing. I mean, you can see how far we are from those peak Wenger days. And just, again, to reinforce how much it took to get there in the first place. And very, very cool that you were privy to kind of his um, elevator sales pitch on what he was going to do for the club in the the coming years. And he, he ended up delivering, again, another man who believed in his philosophy. Um, something that you've referenced a few times about, I can imagine I, part of your philosophy's identity is... Um, almost flipping the interview and interviewing your potential bosses. You, you mentioned kind of doing your due diligence and whatnot on the club. I think can't speak about that enough. You see people walking into these jobs and they don't last, um, you know, as long as you think. And it's because maybe they've gotten themselves into a situation that they have to take a bit of responsibility for, for getting themselves into in, in the first place. But you've got all this experience and I'm very excited to see where, where it takes you next and, Whatever that next club is, I, I, hopefully it'll be a nice fit for you, Phil. I'll hand things off to, to Joe, though, to, to wrap things up. Yeah, good to speak to you, Kai. Likewise. <laughs> there we go. I, I, I wish you had a good story about, I don't know, Pochettino or something, but, you know, I'll leave that for another time. Um, that Yeah, that is all we've got time for today. Um, as always, I want to thank my co-host, Kai Tell, and then, obviously, an extra special thank you from the both of us to to Phil for joining us. We've uh, really enjoyed chatting to you, Phil, and you being uh, our guest. Um, I'm not sure if you what your social media account situation is, but for our listeners, how can they um, how can they best sort of keep up to date with everything going on with Phil Brown? Um, uh, listen, I'm on LinkedIn and stuff like that, but uh, I try to keep myself away from from the headlines in the sure. social media because. As you can see, I, I get myself in enough trouble. <laughs> I don't need social media to help me. Um, no, if if listen, if you have uh, anybody that wants to make a contact with me, I'll um, I'll give them an email address and they can contact me through that. Uh, and I, you know, there's lots of coaches out there that want more information on, you know, how do they take their careers forward? You know, what's the best advice I can give them? If anybody wanted to get in touch with me, I would willingly do that via email and stuff like that but um please feel free um if anybody does contact you to get back in touch um on linkedin and i'll uh, i'll do what i can yeah, much appreciated thanks again phil really in enjoyed this as for our listeners if you enjoyed listening to this interview please do follow us wherever you like to stream your podcasts just look for united mates football podcast you can find us the same way on youtube if you feel like putting any faces to these voices don't forget to click that subscribe button while you're at it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we are at UnitedMatesFP, so give us a follow there. And then for all that content and more in one place, you can visit the website, UnitedMatesFP.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye. <laughs>